Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. Lisa and I went apple picking this weekend, so you know what that means. It's time for everybody's favorite segment, How Do You Like Them Apples? In which I talk about how I like them apples that Lisa and I picked. So, I'm sure most of you already know this, but Honeycrisp apples first burst onto the scene, and I do mean burst because these apples are juicy, about 15 years ago. But it wasn't until about, I would say, 8 to 10 years ago that they really caught on with the consumers, and I don't think it's an overstatement to say that these fuckers changed the apple game. They were the first apple that I would consider like a five-tool player that really exceeded in all of the major apple categories. They are great for juice and cider. As I mentioned, very juicy. They actually have a larger cell than most apples, and that's part of what makes them juicier. But in addition to that, they have a combination of sweet and tart that really just hands down makes the best cider. Because of that flavor profile, they are also an excellent snacking apple. They have a firm texture that bakes well, doesn't get too mealy when you cook them. Plus, they do have that slight tartness that I think works pretty well for pies. That's a little bit of a controversial one. Some people don't like to bake with a Honeycrisp. I think they make a pretty decent pie. They make a good apple butter or apple sauce. Um, you might want to throw like a Newton Pip and something a little bit sour in there to uh, counterbalance the sweetness of the apple, but still, good sauce apple. And they store well. Unrefrigerated, you can keep them a little bit over four months. If you are refrigerating them, we're talking seven months. So pretty darn good. So yeah, like I said, five to a player. Very rare in the apple game. I think before the Honeycrisp shows up, the closest you've got is going to be a East Coast Macintosh, which is an apple that I think is passable in most of those categories, but really only excels in the baking category. And to be clear, I am talking East Coast Macintoshes exclusively. When I got to the Pacific Northwest, found a Macintosh out here, took a bite out of it. Horrible. Just mealy as fuck. It was like a sour red delicious. I almost fucking threw up. And that's been the case with pretty much every Macintosh that I've found out here. I'm not sure what's going on, but uh, West Coast, Macintosh apples, not worth it. So, my point is, Honeycrisp fever has swept the nation for the past several years, and with good cause. I myself have no immunity for that particular fever. Now, I can hear some of you Apple Jacks and Apple Jills out there in Listenland screaming at your phones, but Hub! Honeycrisp season ended weeks ago. How could you possibly have gone picking those apples? Well, calm down, Appleheads. I'm getting to it. Of course we didn't pick Honeycrisps. That is one of the sole drawbacks of the fruit. It has a very short grow season. That and the fact that they bruise pretty easily is one of the main reasons why they are so expensive. But a few years ago, you started seeing some hot new apples appear on the scene that were hybrids of the Honeycrisp. Now I'm talking the Snapdragon, I'm talking the Evercrisp, and most significantly, I'm talking the Cosmic Crisp. Now, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic 
when I say that the Cosmic Crisp is a better apple than the Honey Crisp in just about every way. It is sweeter, it is juicier, it has a firmer texture, it stores longer, and this may be superficial, but it is prettier. It has a dark red skin with bright white lenticels, which is where the apple gets its name because they look like little stars against the dark background of the apple skin. These apples can still be a little bit hard to find. They only showed up two years ago and I think are still just being grown in the Pacific Northwest. They are a hybrid of the Honeycrisp and an Empire apple. I know. I too think of empires as a garbage fucking apple. I would rather eat a DVD copy of Empire Records than an Empire Apple. And if I ate that DVD, then I wouldn't be able to watch that scene where Guar has an inexplicable cameo. Cameo is another type of apple I would rather eat than an Empire Apple, and a cameo is a mid-tier apple at best. But, back to Cosmic Crisps. We also didn't pick those apples. Their harvest season is a little bit later, that doesn't start for another couple weeks. We might go back and get some, but... Normally, we just do one apple picking trip a season. It's kind of a drive. So, what apples did we pick? Crimson Crisps. Is this another Honeycrisp offshoot? It is not. It actually predates the Honeycrisp pretty significantly, first showing up in New Jersey in the early 70s. But due to the popularity of the Honeycrisp and people assuming that it is related in some way, this apple is having a moment right now. I had actually never heard of it before, which is a shame because this is a quality apple. Slightly more tart than a Honeycrisp, but with a firmer texture and a longer storage, I think it is better for baking, comparable for snacking, has a longer storage life, not as good for juice, but come on, I'm not going to make apple juice. Similar in appearance to a Cosmic Crisp, so very pretty. Although it does have duller lenticels, so you don't get that contrast, but still, very pretty. And I don't know if this is true across the board, but in this instance, significantly cheaper. So, Crimson Crisp Apples. How do I like them apples? Pretty good. Now let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tui. On this tenth season finale, Lady Swerthington requests a knot stitch. No dressmaking hasty or shabby, unlike this rhyme for the word synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin. I found that rhyme neither hasty nor shabby. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 49. November 1988. You can't go home again. Written by Marf Wolfman. Drotted by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Barbara Kiesel. Teen Titan Roll Call, Nightwing, Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, Raven, Cyborg, Starfire, Jericho, Danny Fucking Chase, and Red Star. Previously in New Teen Titans. An indeterminate but seemingly significant amount of comic book time ago, the original Teen Titans had a run-in with a Soviet super teen named Leonid Kovar, aka Starfire, but not that Starfire. 
They initially clashed, but eventually developed a mutual respect and parted as friends. An indeterminate amount of comic book time later, the new Teen Titans had their own encounter with Leonid, who by then had changed his codename to Red Star, which was probably for the best. Leonid again clashed with his capitalist counterparts, and again, the teen heroes parted as friends. In more recent news, Cyborg's girlfriend-slash-physical therapist, Dr. Sarah Charles, accepted a job in San Francisco as head of Star Lab's West Coast operations. Sarah explained to Victor that she loved him very much, was not breaking up with him, and was dedicated to making their relationship work. Vic threw a tantrum and stormed off. Then he apologized and they got back together. Then, while Sarah was packing, he had another tantrum and stormed off again. Then he apologized and they got back together. This cycle repeated itself a couple more times, during and after Sarah's move. During a reconciliation phase of this cycle, Dr. Charles invited the gang to visit Star Lab's San Francisco headquarters for a visit. It seemed their old frenemy Red Star was scheduled to be examined by American doctors for the first time as part of a diplomatic exchange program with the Soviet Union, and Sarah thought they might want to say hello. The Titans agreed and showed up early so that they could sit behind a one-way mirror and watch Sarah do medical experiments on a jerk with a big penis named Eric Forrester. Just to clarify, the jerk was named Eric Forrester. We don't yet know the name of the penis. During Eric's exam, Cyborg had another tantrum and stormed off yet again. Beast Boy followed and suggested that if Vic's relationship with Sarah was important to him, he might consider moving to San Francisco. Vic said he'd think about it, and then moped around the city thoughtfully for a while. Back at Star Labs, Red Star finally showed up for his exam. The Titans greeted him warmly, but Leonid was brusque and distant. The Slavic super-soldier informed them that he thought cooperation with the West was a mistake, and that he was only there because he had been ordered to be there by Gorbachev. Sarah began her exam, but before she got very far, two beefy Bolsheviks with blonde brush cuts Kool-Aid-manned their way through the wall, punched Sarah in the tummy, and told Leonid to come with them because his orders had changed. These two toe-headed terrors were old friends of Leonid who had worked with him on the Soviet super team, the People's Heroes. They were named Boris and Natasha, because of course they were, but they went by the codenames Hammer and Sickle, because of course they did. Leonid was pleased to see his costumed comrades and was relieved to hear that his mission had been cancelled, but he wasn't crazy about the Sarah punching. The Titans weren't crazy about that either. They smashed the one-way mirror they had been watching through and confronted the abrasive interlopers. Reluctantly, Red Star sided with his country people against the Titans, and a doctor's office Donnybrook broke out. Hooray! Things seemed pretty evenly matched, but then Hammer snuck up on Starfire, whacked her on the back of the head with his high-tech hammer, and knocked the spicy space princess unconscious. The Russians took Starfire hostage, loading her into a van that they had waiting outside, and promising that she would be released unharmed once they were allowed to leave the country. Red Star was uncomfortable with this underhanded tactic, but agreed to go along with his comrades. But... Unbeknownst to the conflicted communist crime fighter, Hammer and Sickle had no intention of releasing their hostage. They were secretly working for a hardline faction within the Soviet government and were under orders to murder Leonid and frame him for treason in an attempt to discredit the peace process. They planned on executing both Red Star and Starfire as soon as they got back to their base. Oh no! 
Fortunately, Cyborg had just finished his extended sulk session and returned to Star Labs just in time to see the Russian reprobates load Coriander into their van. Displaying a frankly implausible amount of stealth for a 400-pound robot man, Vic leapt unnoticed onto the back of the vehicle and clung to it as it drove away. Gadzooks! Will Boris and Natasha succeed in their sinister scheme? Will Vic move to San Francisco to be with Sarah? And does smashing a one-way mirror result in three and a half years of bad luck? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... No, they neither kill Red Star nor do they capture Moose and Squirrel. No, but he does apologize and they get back together. Again. And tough to tell, because it turns out that another name for a one-way mirror is a two-way mirror. So maybe it's 14 years? Or maybe that whole superstition is bullshit. No real way to know. Hammer speeds the escape van through the streets of San Francisco, somehow oblivious to the fact that Cyborg is clinging to the back. Oblivious, that is, until Cyborg leaps onto the roof, punches through the windshield, and flings Hammer from the vehicle. Okay, first of all, hooray! But B, if that was Vic's plan, why did he bother with the alleged stealth in the first place? Seems like a sucker punch would be just as effective in the alley behind Star Labs. Red Star is like, Cyborg, why are you attacking us? We are just trying to go home. Cyborg is like, well, you did just kidnap Starfire. Leo is forced to concede that that is a valid point. Or he would concede that it was a valid point if he weren't a bit preoccupied with trying to get the van to stop from plowing into a crowd of pedestrians. It seems that when Vic broke the windshield, it somehow caused the brakes to go out. Hmm. Seems to me that running the brake line through a pane of glass is a bit of a design flaw. But what do I know? Till pretty recently, I thought an engineer was just the guy who drove the train. Once he realizes that the brake pedal is a lost cause... Red Star jumps from the van and leaps in front of it, digging his feet into the ground and using his super strength to push the vehicle away from the civilians who are too stunned to move from its path. His gambit pays off and the bystanders are unharmed, but the jostling caused by his Flintstonian vehicle-halting methods has an unexpected side effect. Starfire wakes up. And she is pissed. The Tamaranian warrior princess kicks Sickle through the side of the van, then follows her out into the street. Even though both of Coriander's hands are literally tied behind her back, she still manages to whoop the shit out of Natasha, first with a series of kicks, then with a well-aimed starbolt carefully angled from her still-bound hands. Hooray! Vic is more or less holding his own against Hammer, until Leonid, who still erroneously believes that Boris and Natasha have his best interests at heart, tags in and starts wailing on the mostly molybdenum marvel. While Cyborg is attempting to fend off Red Star's attack, Hammer manages to blast him and Starfire with energy bolts from his eponymous weapon. Once the two titans are temporarily incapacitated, Hammer and Sickle are like, let's murder them and run away. Leonid is like, no, let's just do the runaway part. You know, if he was more polite, he could have said, please Hammer, don't hurt them. Missed opportunity. Leo's purported pals are a little miffed at their missed murder opportunity, but decide to go along with Leo's plan. 
they hop back in their badly battered van and drive off to their hideout to await extraction. When they arrive at their destination, Sickle lights up a smoke and is like, Well, guess it's about time to murder you, Leonid. Sorry about that. Leonid is like, What the fuck are you talking about? Hammer is like, Well, it is being like this. We work for a hardline faction within the Politiboro. They sent us here with four-part mission. A gen? We prevent the American scientists from studying your superpowers and potentially learning to replicate them. Dva? We frame you for treason so our superiors can convince Gorbachev to disavow you. Three. We murder you. And Chitiri. I demonstrate my ability to count to four in Russian. Is impressive, no? Leonid does not find this plan particularly impressive. Especially the part where they tell him all about the plan before they try to kill him. Infuriated by his former teammate's betrayal, Red Star beats up Hammer and Sickle, then escapes, vowing to return once he has exposed them for their wrongdoing. A short while later, back at Star Labs, Cyborg and Starfire reunite with their Titanic teammates and debrief them about their fight with Hammer, Sickle, and Red Star. Danny fucking Chase suggests that he use his government contacts from back when he was an international super spy to track down the Marxist malefactors. But Donna's like, well, we got Starfire back, so why don't we just let them go home? This debate is interrupted by the arrival of Red Star, who walks in and is like, Hammer and Sickle have no intention of returning home until after they have murdered me. Those guys are assholes. The gang is pretty startled by Red Star just showing up back at Star Labs, partly because not too long ago he was beating the crap out of them, but mostly because he used the door to enter. Seriously, Leonid? I don't know how they do things back in Moscow, but here in America, superheroes Kool-Aid man their way through walls. Are you trying to get your spandex taken away? After a surprisingly brief display of skepticism, the Titans agree to help Leonid out. Danny checks in with his aforementioned government contacts to see whether Hammer and Sickle's superiors were successful in their attempts to discredit Leonid and frame him for treason. Turns out they were. Shitty. Gorbachev didn't really believe that Red Star was guilty, but he found that it was more politically expedient to disavow him than to publicly challenge his accusers. Kovar is now a man without a country. Danny is like, but the good news is, you get to live in America now. You can have all the freedom and blue jeans and Big Macs you want. Congratulations! Bizarrely, Red Star is not as stoked about the prospect of having his hard-won reputation sullied and losing his friends, family, and the only home he has ever known, as Danny had anticipated. Weird. Guy must hate freedom or something. A disconsolate Leonid leads the gang to the airplane hangar that Hammer and Sickle had been using as their headquarters, but is unsurprised to find that his erstwhile comrades have fled without a trace. Danny fucking Chase is like, Well, if we can't find them, then maybe we can make them find us. Nightwing is like, Good plan. Just for the record, I thought of it first. Okay, Dick, but I'm pretty sure that if you and Danny hadn't come up with that plan, Leonid would have. I mean, in Soviet Russia, people you are looking for find you. What a country. 
The next day, an article appears in the newspaper announcing that Red Star has defected to the United States and is about to start a new job at Star Labs working as a scientist, which is apparently a thing he has been trained to do. When Hammer and Sickle read the headline, they figure they better head up to San Francisco and murder their old buddy. A few hours later, they leap from a helicopter and Kool-Aid man their way through the ceiling of Star Labs, where Leonid is having a meeting with Dr. Sarah Charles. See, Leonid? That's how a metahuman enters a room. Hammer is like, Okay, Leonid, because we were friends, I will give you one last chance to let me murder you. Red Star declines this generous offer. As he does so, the Titans are like, Surprise! and jump out from where they were hiding. Raven is like, Are you sure you don't want to let me use my mystical nonsense powers to make them just give up and surrender immediately? Wonder Girl is like, No, Raven, go wait in the car. We want to punch them and endanger the lives and property of those around us. It's the superhero way. Yeah, Raven, if that's your attitude, you might as well use a door. Red Star and the Titans beat the shit out of Hammer and Sickle, allowing Leonid to deliver the final blow. Hooray! After punching the crap out of the evil jerkholes, our heroes trust them up so that they can be turned over to the authorities. Dick is like, So, did punching Boris cheer you up, Leo? Leonid is like, No, oddly I am still sad that my entire life has been destroyed. Weird. <laughs> Russians. Am I right? Later that night, Sarah Charles accompanies Victor to the airport. Vic is like, Hey, so I thought about moving out here, but after listening to Leo, I realized, you know what? He's right. Moving sucks. Okay, slightly different scenario, Vic. But you're not wrong. Cyborg continues, I still want us to keep dating, though, and I'll visit you all the time. In conclusion, the status quo is maintained. But... Maybe I'll try to do less tantrums and storming off. That sounds good to Sarah, so they celebrate by making out. Aww. The end. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? It's going fine. Glad to hear it. How are you? I'm doing okay. Are you feeling in any kind of a festive way for the upcoming seasonal holiday? Of Halloween? Yeah. Hmm. I haven't, I haven't thought about it too much. I have realized that it is my favorite season of yard decorations, though. Hmm. Yeah, I've been checking some of those out myself. I'm not generally that huge a Halloween fan or holidays in general, but I've been watching some uh, old... Halloween movies. Oh. Like, uh, I watched the original Mummy the other day. Mm. The Boris Karloff one. Oh, yeah. Very expressive eyes. Yeah. And in a way, The Mummy is kind of the scariest horror movie thing. Because first of all, it's like, it's magic. And he doesn't have, like, a specific weakness. And also, he's a very old man who doesn't understand boundaries or respect them. Mm. Pretty scary. Creepy. Yeah. But yeah, I've been walking around checking out some Halloween decorations in the neighborhood. It's been nice. Nice. We have different opinions on the change of the season, and I feel like you're often relieved when things become gray and cold. Mm -hmm. And I am 
sad <laughs> when that happens. Well, Corey, that's my secret. Hmm. I'm always sad. Oh. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's somehow different this year a little bit. Maybe because so much of the trees on the west coast of the U.S. are on fire. And so when the raining happens, it uh, feels like, oh, maybe things won't burn so much. Yeah, it's nice. That's nice. Yeah. And plus you get to wear better clothes. Different clothes. Well, speaking of people who wear outlandish clothes, you want to talk about some Teen Titans? Sure. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I quite appreciated that it had some sort of conclusion. Agreed. Other than that, I feel like there really wasn't much to this comic book. It was 27 pages long. You know, mm -hmm. perfectly reasonable comic book length. More than half of it was fight scenes. Like, significantly more than half of it. I think probably around two-thirds of it was just fight scenes. Which is fine. It makes me almost want to have a new category of minutia, which is, why does this comic book remind me of Rocky IV? <laughs> because I feel like it comes up every issue that we cover, but this totally reminded me again of Rocky IV, not just because of the Russian stuff, but because Rocky IV is a movie that is essentially just three fight scenes and three montages strung together. And this is just three fight scenes. They don't have the montages, mm -hmm. but it is, you know, very ham-fistedly, America good, Russia bad, and a bunch of fight scenes without really a heck of a lot else in the way of connective tissue. It is impossible to not think of Dolph Lundgren and, uh, is it Bridget Nielsen? Brigitte Nielsen, Brigitte yeah. Brigitte Nielsen with hammer and sickle. And I'm sure that is intentional in the character design. This is an 88 comic, but the, they first appeared in 1986. Mm -hmm. I think that movie came out in 85. Yeah, I'm sure that's intentional. But it is odd how much Rocky IV comes up on this podcast, especially because it's not like a movie that I love or that I feel like I think about all that much. But m maybe I do. How often do you think to yourself, I can't hit him, he's like a piece of iron? <sighs> I mean, n not more than like once a week. Okay, yeah, you're fine. Yeah. yeah, and I could stop thinking about it anytime I want. Good. Yeah. yeah, no, you got nothing to worry about. I don't have about. a problem. No, you don't have a Rocky IV problem. <laughs> no. Other than that, I think my main takeaway from this issue is I'm really going to miss Eduardo Barreto on art. This is his last issue of Drawing the Teen Titans. I think he does the annual for this year, too, but this is his last regular issue. And I feel like he doesn't get talked about enough as a great Teen Titans artist. You will hear a lot about George Perez, deservedly so. And you will hear a lot about Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. And both of them did amazing jobs. But I feel like Eduardo Barreto has made a real contribution to the series. And one that you really don't hear about all that often. Yeah, I feel like he got a little bit of a shout out. But I don't know. It wasn't significant enough, I guess, at the end. I think because... How did Wolfman put it? Oft? I don't know if it was yeah, Wolfman. It was not glowing. Like, some, he did okay sometimes. Yeah, it's like, well, you know, he was taking over for Perez, but sometimes he did a very good job. Oft times, brilliant. I was like... Just say brilliant. Just say, yeah, leave out the modifier there. Yeah, the quote is, We bid farewell to artist extraordinaire Eduardo Barreto, 
who filled impossibly big shoes, oft-times with brilliance. It's... it's kind of backhanded. He didn't fuck up that much. Yeah. Sometimes he did a pretty good job. Yeah, I'll miss his art, too. It was a weird thing of, oh man, I'm so excited Perez is coming back, but I'm gonna miss this guy. Yeah, me too. Honestly, I think the bigger reason I'm excited for Perez to return, I really do love his artwork. I don't think it's necessarily a significant upgrade from Eduardo Barreto. I am more looking forward to having somebody co-plot the issues with Marv Wolfman. Mm. Because Perez is going to come back as co-plotter and artist, at least for a little bit. And I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, maybe we'll get some story arcs that arc instead of just fly off into space like a lost thing that flies into space. It really, the arc seems to be a big problem for him. He seems to have a real issue with parabolas. Like, he'll make some character tiny circles that keep going around and around and around. We get some of that in this issue with Cyborg re-reaching the same resolution to his relationship with Sarah that he did eight issues ago and has, I think, four times in between. This one's gonna stick. Oh, okay, good. I think it probably is, honestly, but it is frustrating to have that just repeating loop. I circumvented that by deciding this is is, (laughs) he got it figured out we're good honestly i do think so i think there is kind of a finality to this one but in general with his characters they don't arc they loop or they just do a straight line that shoots right off into space Mm -hmm. with cyborg's particular one i found myself wondering to what extent that is not necessarily an intentional but a necessary treading of water with all of the rescheduling of the comics that have happened in the last like eight to ten issues when they say and coming up in this next issue this is going to happen and that ends up being a comic that's two or three issues later in some cases four issues later i feel like the order of them got shuffled around so much the reshuffling of the schedule might have had a lot to do with why i felt some of these issues were fairly narratively unsatisfying so Hopefully that'll resolve itself when we have a defined, like I think they're saying, it's a new four-issue arc that's going to be who is Wonder Girl? Is it Wonder Girl? Last time it was who is Donna Troy, and now it's who is Wonder Girl. I'm going to check because there's an ad for it in this issue. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't see the ad. That would make sense, though, because Dick's like, no, we are really going to get this figured out. Yeah. I swear, this time. Yes, the five-part miniseries within a series who is Wonder Girl, starting with New Titans 50. And so I think in order to wrap up storylines in this issue so that you can restart that, they had to move some things around and some storylines got drawn out longer than was the intention. It really seemed like the Origins issue that we did was probably supposed to be the 50th issue and then they decided, no, we want Perez coming back for the 50th. Mm. So where can we put this one? I don't know. I'm hoping these issues resolve themselves for a little bit. Me too. Although I will say I am nervous about hinging this new run of the series on continuity involving Wonder Girl, because she is a weird black hole of continuity as Mm -hmm. a character. Mm -hmm. Well, you just strap a hypnotized cat to a purple ray gun and hope for the best. Because if the cat gets hit with the purple ray, then maybe it'll be strangle-proof? Yeah, 
And then uh, she'll be like, I can't strangle this thing. I guess I'll just stop doing that to cats. That would be great. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there'll ever be any resolution to that arc. Why is she so cat strangle crazy? Well, only when she's hypnotized or something, right? Yeah, it's whenever she's mind controlled in any way she tries to strangle a cat. Mm -hmm. It seems like a new origin story is going to be rife with mind control possibilities. So lock up your kittens. <laughs> Hide your cats. <laughs> I wonder what her thoughts on Alf would be. Oh, I think she'd be mortified because she's not like pro-cat murder and sure. eating. It's just when she's mind controlled, that's just what happens. Do you think that a mind-controlled Donna and an Alf might have the kind of symbiotic hunting relationship that a wolf and a raven would? Are you taking this to Dick Raven territory? <laughs> I'm trying so hard. <laughs> he would cook cats. He had recipes, so he wasn't like a snake that needs it to be like a live animal to eat. No, so yeah, he could so stab she, it. She could yes. kill the cat and he would bake it. And he could maybe, you know, like a raven, scout ahead and help mm -hmm. hypnotize Donna know where cats might be. Yeah, I guess that could work. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't watch it or buy it if it was media to consume. I might. I mean, I, I like cats, <laughs> but I, I just want to see Wonder Girl and Alf hanging out together, I think. <laughs> and I think that is, you know, if you're just coming up with a storyline, what do they have in common as characters? That's where you're going to end up landing. Mm -hmm. So... I don't know if you guys got any fan art of Wonder Girl and Alf. I'd like to see it. Not of them. Corey. Corey's shaking his head. He, I don't mean that kind of fan art, Corey. Although. <laughs> so in this issue, I couldn't tell if it was retconning the previous issue or just maybe clarified something that I hadn't realized I was unclear on. From the last issue, did you get the impression that Hammer and Sickle were representing the legitimate Russian government? Because I got the impression that they weren't. But in this, it turns out that they kind of are. That was still fuzzy in this one. But yeah, because it seemed like they were lying about that to fuck with Red Star. But then he can't go back to Russia. So maybe they weren't lying. Yeah. I got the impression that they were not lying to him, because why would they at that point? They're about to murder the guy. That's when that came out as part of their speech of like, well, now you're dead. Which really, wait to give the speech until after you kill him. Or until he's at least incapacitated. Right. They always mess that up, bad guys do. Yeah, it's... Always. Uh, should give some kind of a seminar. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want them to be better at their job, but it's frustrating to watch them be so bad at over it. Over and over. Yeah. That was one of the things, actually, that I found added a little bit of dimension to what otherwise is a very one-dimensional, like, U.S. good, Russia bad conversation. This idea that systems of power do require, like, polarizing forces or foils. Hmm. So they're like, yeah, Gorby's reasonable, but, like, he also needs these uh, shitty antagonists to maintain his grip on power, and you're just caught up in the struggle. That is one read on it. I actually had the opposite read on it, where I feel like in the last issue, it was Gorbachev and the powers that controlled the legitimate Soviet government at that point were kind of on the side of good, whereas this evil offshoot hardline communist faction that Hammer and Sickle represented were the bad guys. And then in this, it's like, no, 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 don't, don't worry. We think that the Soviet government's bad still. Gorbachev is 
if not evil, then amoral and you're willing to make compromises that sacrifice people's lives. So don't worry, we still think Gorbachev's bad. Yeah, no, we're saying the same thing. It's it's in the last issue they did, as you put it, like he's the good one and mm -hmm. Hammer and Circle work for the bad ones. Sure. And then in this issue they're like, no, it's all they're yeah. all in the same. Yeah, they're they're so, they're all bad. Mm -hmm. And America represents freedom and you know, people from authoritarian governments like Tamaran or the Soviet Union, they just don't understand our freedom ways. Man, I know we'll get into timestamps later, but yeah, Danny fucking Chase in one sentence nails this idea of why America is the superior place. Yeah. It's so ham-fisted. It really is. But, I mean, in a way, putting those words into a 14-year-old nincompoop's mouth, <laughs> defang them a little bit. But I still think that is what we're supposed to have as a takeaway. And for all his faults, I think Danny is still supposed to be the audience surrogate. So, yeah, when he's like, uh, but you can live here now. That's got to mean something. You guys aren't free. But you can do anything here. You're better off here. Also wrong. You can't just do anything here. <laughs> no, no. I actually really appreciated Red Star's response, which is, you are a child. I can forgive your ignorance. It's like, yeah. But he does kind of immediately undercut by saying, I'm not talking about politics. I mean, obviously, we all agree America's way better politically. It's the best. Russia's the worst. But we're talking about the ones we love, the ones who love us. And they have been taken from me. Now I have nothing. I really thought that was nice, the way that he kind of rebutted, though. I mean, yes, you can read that as saying, yeah, yeah, of course, America is still a superior system. But you can also read it as Red Star saying that our relationships and love transcends political shit. Right. Again, Rocky IV, you get at the ending, the government's bad, but the people are good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a real, real Rocky IV issue. It really On is. On a scale of Rocky IVs, I give this four. Four Rocky IVs. That's the most you can have. I think it's accurate. Could he use some more montages? Well, goes without saying, Hub. Did I tell you about the time when I was watching Rocky IV on TV and they cut to commercial mid-montage twice? Oh. Because where else are you going to cut? That's true. Yeah, it's like, oops, all montages and fight scenes. Mm -hmm. We were talking about something before Rocky IV. I'm almost certain of it. Politics. Mm. Russian bad. Americans good. I think that was Rocky IV. Oh, yeah. I think Red Star does come across as a pretty sympathetic character in this, and I appreciated that. We find out that he has a love interest that's named Natasha, which is interesting, because that is also Sickle's name, so that might just be the only Russian name that Marv Wolfman knows. Mm -hmm. Like, let's see, uh, can she be called Boris? No, probably not. Okay, Natasha. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I had to read that a couple times to mm -hmm. sort out. Beloved leader? No, I can't call her that. <laughs> Lenin? No. No, I mean, he does invoke Lenin, certainly. That is an oath that Red Star swears. Yeah, thank Lenin. Yeah, which is fine. It's weird. I mean, even Captain America, who I guess would be the American equivalent of Red Star, if he is their symbol in a certain way, you don't see him going around and being like, By James Madison's breeches! <laughs> By George Washington's wooden teeth. Mmm. By Lincoln's ears. He did have ears, yeah. He had a big ears. 
Lincoln? Yeah. Did he? Huh. Do you think that's why he wore the stovepipe hat? Make his ears look smaller. Oh, I thought that was just to make yourself look uh, bigger and more formidable, like when a mountain lion comes up. Oh, that's right. A lot of people forget Stephen Douglas was part mountain lion. Mm -hmm. And that is actually how Lincoln won those debates. Just appear bigger. <laughs> yeah. Tallest hat you can find. Good thinking. Mm -hmm. It's also important to put uh, a reflective surface on the back of the hat so that if Stephen Douglas is following you, he'll think you ha have eyes there and are watching. Oh. It's a safety precaution. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll never know. You never see the back of the hat in, you know, those portraits. That's true. And it's probably for a reason. Mm. He's cagey, that Lincoln. Oh, yeah. Maybe not cagey enough. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> He took his hat off in the theater. <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah, that's like uh, why they got the drop on him. Oh. Although, can you imagine if he didn't take his hat off in that theater? Would have been rude as fuck. He's probably got pretty good seats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he's the president. Him. Yeah. yeah. Be like, hey, that's I can't a real no-win situation for a Lincoln. Mm. Shame. Yeah. There were a bunch of weird little moments that I really enjoyed in this issue. One of them is we have Cyborg for, I believe, at least the second, possibly third time, referencing that he really loves the musical Les Mis. Yeah, what's up with that? Do you think he just heard it once and was like, not the musical, but the expression, and was like, oh, that sounds classy, I'll say that, or he really likes the musical? I think he just really likes the musical. It seems like, I, I mean... He's brought it up, I think, like I said, I think three times now over the course of like four or five years. I'd rather be doing that. Gosh, lovely Miz. Real Javert fan. It's quite a production. It's a very impressive production. But, you know, we get a few little touches of Cyborg's rich life that he has in New York. Maybe that's part of it. Theater. He doesn't want to be too far from Broadway. Mm -hmm. That's why he's not moving to San Francisco. The, you, know, you could see the touring theater company's version of Les Mis, but come on. He doesn't want to do that. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a, he's a Broadway guy. Yeah, Broadway or bust for this guy. Uh-huh. Probably they have a better uh, competitive tiddlywinks league in New York. He references playing tiddlywinks, or rather not playing tiddlywinks, mm -hmm. uh, which I think he's upset about. I think he, would, he wishes that he and Red Star were playing tiddlywinks. Rather than a fight to the almost death. Yeah, right. yeah, it's a fun game. That's the one where you've got little, like, blue and red plastic chips that you press down on and make them jump. Yeah, yeah, it's done with plastic these days. Uh, but, yeah, it's a very old game. Has some really super fun terminology. You know what the chip you press the other chips with is called? A uh, wink? It's a squidger. The other chips are winks. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And you use your squidger to try to flip up your winks so that you can squap your opponent. Squap? That's when you have your wink land on top of their wink so that they will not be able to flip it effectively with their squidger. <laughs> Isn't that some fun nonsense words? Is this a British game? I think it's just old. Oh. It's from like the 1880s when it first came out. Probably British. It sounds very like Quidditchy. Yeah. But uh... There's some pretty fun words. Those are fun words, yeah. I can see why Cyborg enjoys that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We also learn that he thinks a hammer is a second-rate pig sticker. I would say, if I was rating implements in terms of their efficacy of pig sticking, 
Hammer's got to be at least third or fourth rate. Yeah, that one was... He just has a phrase that's his go-to <laughs> phrase when he's insulting somebody's weapon, and it's yeah. his pig sticker. Yeah, uh, but yeah. That was a bad that's choice. That's not second rate. Mm-hmm. That's like... He could have just said, like, that's a stupid fucking hammer, man. Yeah. That would have made Oh, he would have hated Boris that. so mad. Well, it's not like Boris seems to have, like... I, I mean... Look, his English is a lot better than my Russian, but it's not like he has a necessarily a grasp on the subtleties of the language. I think you know when you're being uh, made fun of, though. Oh, no, totally. But, I mean, he could convey the kind of derision with tone and just, like, stupid fucking hammer. I think that would hurt, that would hurt more. Yeah. Than, like, that's a second-rate pig sticker. Because, like, maybe that was a distraction, because if I was Boris, I'd, like, look at my hammer and just be like, what? Well, especially if, like, you don't have the subtleties of the idiom and you'd just be like, he's a sticker of pig? Like, for my trapper keeper? Right, like, yeah, very confusing. I, there's no... This would be terrible for sticking onto folder, but is good for murder? <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's so confusing. Yeah. So maybe that's what Borgie was after, but yeah, that I just shook my head when I yeah. read that. Well, he had a few things that made me shake my head. Not as much as some of the other Titans, I've got to say. Particularly, there is an interaction between Dick and Danny Chase, where Danny Chase, as a nickname, calls Nightwing Dickster, and Dick's response, now, I think we know that he is saying, hey, my secret identity is Dick Grayson. You can't call me Dick in public. But he in public responds to being called Dickster by saying, Hey, Danny, not in public. If you do not have the context that his name is Dick, that is a very troubling interaction between a superhero and a 14-year-old boy. Uh, if he's like, Hey, Dickster, not in public, kid. That's our private name for me. Yeah. Especially you've, you're a representative of your country at that point. The public that you're interacting with is someone who is inclined to look upon you as a member of the decadent and perverse West. You're not doing yourself any favors there, Dick. Think it through. Yeah, that whole scene, like, the way that he's drawn, too, he's kind of, like, holding his chin, just being like, hmm, how do I... <laughs> Address this. Now, Danny. <laughs> Not in public. Yeah, it's it's easy to read it very wrong. Yeah. Another one that I think I did read correctly, but I sure don't like, is that the whole team decided, you know, Raven could take these guys out really easily and knock them out, and they wouldn't be hurt, and we would be out of danger, and the situation would resolve itself easily. But they want to hit these guys and punch them. So they tell Raven to sit it out. Okay. Yeah, I was trying to get a read on... I was like, wait, so if she does that, uh, something bad... Trigon comes back? Like, what happens? No, no it's just they just want to have the satisfaction of of beating up the guys they don't like. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And I mean, Danny almost gets killed in the fight. Like, he can't levitate a whole ceiling. Mm Mm-hmm. As we've mentioned, he can levitate an entire space shuttle, but... Not a, uh, not a ceiling. Not a ceiling. Mm-hmm. And so he almost gets crushed if Jericho doesn't tackle him out of the way. They're doing a ton of collateral damage to Star Labs, which is a very high-tech facility. Who knows if there's, like, a contained extra-dimensional fart monster that's going to eat 
I guess wouldn't eat Cyborg's mom again. That's already done. But it could eat somebody else's mom, certainly. Very, like, very irresponsible. You don't do that. But they do all I the know. time. Everywhere. Public destruction. They do the public destruction all the time, but they don't make clear that there is explicitly an easier way that would cause no collateral damage that they could be doing, but choose not to. The fact that that is spelled out in this is really one of those head-scratch moments where you're like, yeah, these guys are kind of shitty. Mm -hmm. So that was weird to see. It was weird, but it was also, I don't know, charming's not the right word, <laughs> but like the team dynamic thing where they're like, hey, let's tag team this situation. Yeah. Beast Boy gets to punch the guy once, and then... Somebody else gets to punch him. I am not averse to seeing Hammer and Sickle get punched. They, they are real bad guys. I mean, when I watch Rocky IV, I do find myself kind of rooting for Drago a little bit. Just because Dolph Lundgren's so cool. And he used to date Grace Jones. Mm. But Boris never dated Grace Jones. So it's fun watching him get, get punched. And, and Sickle seems like a real jerk. Plus, she smokes cigarettes like a bad guy. <laughs> so... It's nice to see them get beat up, I guess. It's gratifying, but it is also questionable, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, the Titans are supposed to be virtuous, and virtuous people don't enjoy inflicting pain on even non-bad guys. One would hope. And yet. And yet, here we are. Hmm. But also, it was the 80s. Sure. And this has four Rocky Fours. That's true. It is, yeah, it is a very Rocky Four thing to do. Yeah. You don't play any defense. Rocky's fighting technique was you lead with your face. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Speaking of not protecting yourself, in the opening scene, we see that Cyborg is still clinging to the back of the van and making no effort whatsoever to conceal himself other than to say, I'm got to make sure I'm quiet. Well, he's clinging to the back of the van, like right in front of the windows of it. With his feet not really well connected. So ostensibly he's hanging on and kind of like bumping. Yeah. Into the back of the van, and he's essentially made out of metal, and the van is metal. It must have been very noisy. Yeah, there's a reason they don't make those, like, Garfield window-clinging toys out of metal. <laughs> well, they're too expensive. Okay, there are several reasons why. <laughs> but the fact that he never once checks his rearview mirror or looks back to see that Cyborg is on the windows of the van is one of a few reasons why I do not believe that either Boris or Red Star are good drivers. Mm. The other main one is that they didn't steal a different vehicle. They get into that huge wreck because the van has no brakes. They punch several holes in the van, and then they get back in the van and drive off. Mm -hmm. There were other cars there. They could have carjacked another car. They're fugitives at this point they should have stolen a different car they are driving at top speed through san francisco with no brakes i don't know if you know this Corey. san francisco a little hilly mm. tough place to go with no brakes yeah i wouldn't recommend it no and the pedestrians are too slow <laughs> yeah oh man and what pedestrians they are <laughs> They will definitely come up later. Yep. We talked about it earlier, this idea of political systems or systems of power needing some kind of opposition to 
maintain their power. And one of the reasons that was given for Red Star basically getting sold out to his own government was they needed a scapegoat for all the things that weren't going well in Russia. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they listed was the Afghan war. Yeah. And I just had one of those moments where I was like, this comic's what, 33 something years old? Holy shit, man. Like, it's not prescient necessarily, but also we're doing the same wrong things. Yeah. This many years later. No kidding. Yeah, it, it is weird to see the war in Afghanistan referring to a totally different thing that is also in some ways pretty goddamn similar. You ever see Rambo 3? Yeah, I think so. It's probably been a while. That was the one that was uh, dedicated to the brave people of Afghanistan as they were fighting the Russians. It was Rambo going and fighting on the side of Afghani insurgents. I was looking that up because I was like, wait, did that movie really happen? It did. It was, for a very long time, the most violent movie that had ever been made. Wow. You had 108 on-screen deaths, 221 separate and distinct acts of violence, and 70 explosions in it. Damn. Including the only one that I remember, which is Rambo blowing up a helicopter with a bow and arrow. Wow, I am going to give that three and a half Rocky Fours. Yeah, it rates very highly on the Rocky Four scale. Damn. Doesn't have a ton of impact on this issue. This is really much more of a Rocky Four issue than a Rambo Three issue. Uh-huh. But uh, maybe that should be the new category. What Sylvester Stallone movie does this issue remind me of? Play by ear if it comes to Two Judge Dreads. <laughs> this is a one and a half Oscar movie. <laughs> I give it three cop lands up. Yeah, that's about a half of First Blood. Hmm. Two and a half Cobras. Mm, three. Okay. Man, I can't wait till we get to the arm wrestling issues. <laughs> it's not even close to the top. Let alone over it. Come on. <laughs> well, was there anything else about the comic book you wanted to bring up before we get into the minutia? It will all come out there, I'm confident. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what do you feel like starting off with? Let's talk about timestamps or show and tells. Yeah, let's talk some uh, timestamps and show and tells. What did you have in this issue? Well... We've already talked about the Rocky Four elements a mm-hmm. lot, but yeah, Danny's comment about you can do anything you want in the U.S. Like, it's the best. It just was so, like, mid-Cold War sentiment. Yeah, I mean, late Cold War. Yeah, that's at this true. Point. Like, this, this is, like, is the tail end of it. Right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so late Cold War. But still, that, like, America is a great idea. That Yeah, you're right. In addition to the Rocky Fourness and the Rambo Threeness of this comic, there is a fair amount of other unambiguous jingoism and nationalism going on, mm-hmm. which does feel very 1988. Yep. There is a real rah-rah, we're actually on the verge of winning this thing attitude towards the Cold War, which I, I think at least initially you had that being a vindication that, well, if we have won this Cold War, then that means that we must have been definitely right. Yeah, and so let's give Oliver North a break. I mean, yeah, come, come on. on. Yeah, I had the end of the Cold War and the uh, the fact that the Afghanistan war means that one, not this one. 
Mm-hmm. So jarring. It really was odd reading that phrase. Any other timestamps? I didn't have other timestamps, but I did have a show and tell. Yeah? Which won't surprise you, probably, to know that it's from Vic, who is normally a real external processor, where he'll just verbal, he'll just narrate everything that he's doing. This mm-hmm. time it was more internal, like there were thought bubbles. Right. But it was the entire fight scene on page seven where he's just thinking the whole time and then at the end he's like why am i thinking so much i shouldn't be fighting yeah it was cute it was cute also him thinking as he's garfielding that van like oh i gotta be quiet (laughs) i love the idea that that solves the problem like he's a 400 pound man made out of metal clinging to the back of a van and he's like careful careful yep as he hangs out right in front of the fucking windows of the thing very silly yeah sartorially speaking which elements of fashion in this issue did you feel were most worthy of note so uh we foreshadowed it a little bit earlier and talking about the slow pedestrians that were very frustrating to red star who just Mm. wouldn't get out of the way (laughs) and uh in this one panel we got uh what i'm gonna call the three p's of the 80s somebody that's maybe a pimp we have somebody that is probably a preppy and a punker yep they are a real street gang in a horror movie in the (laughs) 80s where you have representatives of all of the different i had the lady being more new wave probably than Mm. preppy but we have a definite punk we have a guy who He's wearing a bright yellow fedora with a leopard print band around it. He's dressed very much like a stereotypical 1980s pimp. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the three of them are just hanging out on their way to probably get murdered by Freddy or Jason. Mm-hmm. And it is very, very distinct. The punk has... It's not quite a mohawk. It's like a mohawk that kind of bulks out in the middle, but... It's like a really wide... Yeah, mohawk. it's like it's in a triangle rather than just a straight line. But uh, it, it's mohawk-esque, and he's wearing some kind of, looks like bondage gear mostly. He's got some chains mm-hmm. around his neck and yep. a lot of black leather. We also see that Hammer and Sickle, I hadn't noticed it as much in the last issue, but their costumes also have like studded belts and studded bracelets as part of them. I wonder if that has always been part of their costume or if that is something they picked up while they were in San Francisco. Like, let's swing by the Castro, go to the power exchange, and uh, this looks nice. Now I look like, how do you say, pro wrestler. (laughs) Ah! Demolition! Accent smash! Yeah. Yeah. Don't like uh, assless pants, though. Don't like, but maybe for later. Yeah, other than that, I think we've covered all of the fashion that's in this. We don't get any new characters, and there aren't really too many civilians. Sarah Charles is wearing a nice, bulky purple sweatshirt at the end Mm -hmm. when her and Vic have their little chat. Very 80s. Mm -hmm. Very puffy. Yeah, and she has some nice uh, big gold hoop earrings, too, Mm -hmm. which also struck me as very 80s. She's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. If she wants to be with Vic, I'm glad they're still together. Frankly, I think I feel like he's really fucked this thing up. But if if that's what she wants, I'm glad they're happy. He is a paragon of patience, mm. as we are led to believe. And I will say that as opposed to almost everyone else we've seen in this comic book, Vic actually knows where her lips are when they kiss. <laughs> like, they have a kiss where their mouths match up. And I was like, finally! <laughs> 
maybe that is why she is so intent on staying with him, despite how badly he fucks up. He is the only person in the DCU who knows how to kiss. What you couldn't see is Nightwing off-panel just shaking his head. <laughs> no, no, no. You're supposed to try to eat the side of her cheek. Come on! Corey, I think we should have us a Battle of the Band Names! In this issue, what band names were you able to find in the text? Well, as often happens, many of the good ones turned out to already be band names, mm. including the first one that jumped out at me, which was a, a sentence fragment from DFC, which is Buzz King. Ooh, Buzz King's nice. But yeah, they are a garage band who uh, has songs on Facebook. So Man, I wonder if King Buzzo from the Melvins is upset at them. Oh. I would be. Yeah. I, I might be upset, but I might also just be like, I got pretty good hair. I'm good. Probably. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I waited on him at a table one time. Oh, did you? Yeah, the Melvins came into the Lebanese restaurant where I was working at the time. Got themselves some sausage sandwiches, which they seemed to enjoy. That place had good food. It did. Probably still does. Probably. But in terms of band names that aren't already taken, I will give my first offering, which is, I think, kind of shoegazy, moody, indie rock. That is a band, maybe from the Pacific Northwest, called A Thousand Other Failures. Oh, I had that too. I had them as a goth marching band. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Um, that does not go together. You wouldn't think, but I mean, doesn't that sound like a thousand other failures? I guess. Like, you got a cast of that, like, you know, they get lost in the mix there. I feel like this is one of those things that's like um, a candy cane stuck into a dill pickle where people are like, oh, that sounds disgusting. And then other people are like, no, it's really good. And then you try it, and you're like, no, that is fucking disgusting. Yeah, okay, fine. I I've never tried one, but I, I can't believe that would taste good. Look, I can't either, but marching bands have a way of making things sound good that you wouldn't think would. Like, the Stanford marching band's cover of Crazy Train is so fucking good. Yeah, but, I mean, I'm trying to think of, like, a Cure song, or, like, what would... Yeah, man. Can't you see a marching band doing close to you? That's the only song. They're just going to play that over and over. You're going to get so fucking sick of it. I don't think I would. All right. Okay, fine. Well, we can decide what the band is. I mean, well, unless we, have we haven't... We will have to go with that if we don't have any others. That what if we up. have another one that matches? Man, did you have Laser Sickle? No. Oh, I had them as an EDM band that sings songs about either frozen treats or farm equipment improvement. <laughs> oh, that's charming. No, I had a yet another German power metal band, this one called Wingmeister. Ooh. What kind of metal do you think they play? That's a power metal. I mean, that's a, a pretty broad subgenre that could go anywhere from, mm. like, the Scorpions to Blind Guardian, also both German bands. Ooh. But, you know, kind of a little bit lighter sounding, more uplifting oh. than regular metal. Often some fantastic fantasy type elements to it. Dragon Force would be another example. Not German. Okay. But uh, that, you know, hmm. kind of more symphonic a little bit too. Yeah. What was the name of that one? I'm sorry. Wingmeister. Wingmeister's pretty or, good. Wingmeister. Definitely better than Dickster. <laughs> it sure does. Yeah. 
I I did not choose Dixter as a potential oh, me neither. band That's... name. That seems yeah. kind of like a missed opportunity. Yeah. Although I'm also kind of proud of myself. For yeah. Not... Good job. Yeah. You're Good really... job. And I'm disappointed in us. And oh, proud they're, of they're us. Not, they're not mutually exclusive. No. Yeah. Mm. I'm proud disappointed. Mm. The other one that I had was No Sensation, mm. which I had doing kind of nihilistic covers of 80s songs. Mm. I was thinking of New Sensation by NXS, but No Sensation. Mm. Uh, but they do other songs like that. Yeah, I could see that. So I guess we are back to figuring out what kind of music A Thousand Other Failures is. You're seeing them as more shoegazy indie? Yours is probably weirder, so we should go with that. We don't know who they're competing against, right? No, my suspicion would be Dick Raven. It's going to be hard to beat a Dick Raven. Oh, man. I, you hesitate to even try. But I guess you send a Raven to fight a Raven, so we got to go with the goth. Yeah, good point. Element. Good point, especially in this, the spookiest of seasons. Ooh. Pumpkin spice season. <laughs> exactly. So, the goth marching band, a thousand other failures, it is. Yep. Let's see how they do against probably Dick Raven. I don't remember what we chose last week, so I don't even know who Dick Raven is going to be going up against. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> kind of probably doesn't. Corey, who did you have as your president of the drama club this issue? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion? You know, this one was a little tricky for me because I kind of wanted to give it to Red Star because he was so dramatic at the end, but I don't think he was overacting because if my family and loved ones had been removed from me, I too would have turned those different colors and been bathed in angry shadows. Sure. But what I did decide was because in large part, this character contributed to the four Rocky Fours rating I gave it is the constant bad guy scowl on Hammer's face. Mm. I mean, come on. Like, we get it. Yeah. You don't need to keep looking so fucking angry all the time. Yeah, I know. You can't hit him. He's like iron. Yeah. You must break him. We get it. That was a jerk-off motion with a raspberry. Yeah. Yeah. For oh, Man, any hand signal is so much better with a fart noise. I know we've been over this, but like, Flipping somebody off while, while, while making a fart noise. Oh, yeah. So good. Especially if you give it the whole, like, like it's a rocket of, of middle finger blasting off. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Yeah. I was torn between a couple. I almost gave it to Cyborg just because of the explicit statement that he does like the theater in terms of, I'd rather be watching Les Mis, but I guess I'm doing pretty good. But... I did end up going with Red Star just because a lot of the poses he did were just, yes, earned, but still. He does that, like, these hands, these hands poses, where he's just, like, looking at his fists as they, like, exude power and just being like, would I punch you with them? I might! Yeah, that's fair. I think we've talked about in the past clenched fist that's focused on gets mm -hmm. you super high drama club marks. Yeah, and so I did ultimately give it to him. Also, I don't know how serious a relationship he really has with Natasha at this point. It is pretty soon after his last fiance died on panel. Unless this is like a post-crisis thing where that didn't happen in their last encounter, but I think it did. 
but yeah, it, it's, I guess he, maybe he just got over Malady, Maladova, or whatever her name was, quicker than I would have thought. Also, Corey, I do have to apologize to you. It turns out you weren't there for that issue. Oh, thank God. No, we had a guest star. <laughs> I wasn't going to tell you, but, uh, oh, yeah. But I did. I'm glad that, uh, that you let that slip. <laughs> I was wondering. Yeah, that was, we had Elizabeth Alley filling in for you for uh, that one. Okay. So, sorry. Mm-hmm. You get a reimbursement of the last 25 Corey points that you spend. That's great. Yeah, yeah, you can spend those anywhere within the park. And then, yeah, the other thing that put Red Star over the top is that he goes from the these hands and the kind of sad, dejected, to just the screaming no at the top of his lungs with really no pause between the two like we get a page break between them so it doesn't seem as jarring but those are supposed to be consecutive actions where he goes from like the dark brooding closing his eyes and saying i have nothing to no ah, it's wrong <laughs> so surprising when you do that yeah oh and that's, that's probably how they felt and so that's why he gets president of the drama club okay yeah you were a close runner up that was a scary know that you just yelled and i knew it was coming yeah and still Corey. no ooga booga i was ready Corey, i think it's time we took this party to the bozo what instance of one character calling another character a bozo either literally or metaphorically do you think is worth focusing on <laughs> Oh, that's not bad. That's like a beefier version of mine. This is the reggae because there's a delay on it. Oh. That would be more dub than reggae, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, dub is a form of reggae music. Ah, uh, it's like a square rhombus thing. Hmm? Every square is a rhombus, but not every rhombus is a square. Right. So, all dub is reggae, but not all reggae is dub. Square rhombus, flat circle. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, times the square rhombus. Yep. Of dub reggae. Times the reggae rhombus? Geometric. Oh, you gotta expand time geometrically. <clears throat> so, yeah, two natty bees. Yep. Two natty bees and pretty good ones, I gotta say. The first one is on page three. It is Cyborg describing Hammer in a thought bubble. Yet Bozo here doesn't seem to be your average everyday Russian travel agent. I guess travel agent would be kind of a timestamp mm. as well. You don't mm -hmm. see many of those anymore. Nope. But my favorite of the bozos is the second one that actually Danny Chase says, where he uses, and I believe coins the phrase, bozo brains. To describe his whole team. Yeah, bunch of bozo brains. He's not wrong in this issue. His team is acting like a bunch of bozo brains. Maybe. So here's where Dick is interesting, because Dick... He knows Danny, despite being an annoying little shit, is, is occasionally pretty smart. Mm -hmm. And so he does that thing of like, okay, you tell me your idea, <laughs> and I'll tell you if it's what I was thinking. Right. And then Danny does come up with his like, well, I think we should do this kind of trap. And Dick is like, yeah, you got it. That was what I was going to say. Good I had job. A, I had a, a boss who literally on a weekly basis in a meeting would say, I was just thinking that. Like, not joking? No. Wow. Not to, just to me, but to any Right, anybody other. who had a good idea mm -hmm. that he liked? Yeah. Like, 
just about to say that. So uh, we'll put it down as uh, we both came up with it. Yeah. Now, I, I don't even cool know credit. if it was like a getting a credit for it thing. It was just like a habit that yeah. he had of like, that was his way of saying good idea. <laughs> so I was just thinking of that. Wow. Nice guy. Yeah. He was no Danny fucking Chase, that's for sure. Okay. He wasn't. He, wasn't... <laughs> he said that so weird. Okay. Did I say it like a little John? This... Okay. <laughs> no, like, like you didn't. What? <laughs> this is a pretty good little Thank John. You. Uh, no, like, you were incredulous. Mm, I was a little bit incredulous. I think your boss might have been Danny fucking Chase. Oh. I don't know. I mean, it probably... Okay! <laughs> that wasn't as good as yours. No, no. That is very good. Oh. It is an excellent little job. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. The, obviously, the two Natty Bs, front runners in the category. But there were a lot of very good insults in this. I really liked... When Red Star told Danny Chase after his little Ra Ra America speech, and I mentioned it earlier, but like, you are a child. Just telling a child that they are a child, always a solid diss. Mm-hmm. And one that's really going to sting. I also liked when Hammer called Cyborg a weak-kneed coward. That seemed to be a trope that the Russians were big on, because at another point they called them spineless cowards. Like, mm-hmm. seemed really big on, like, picking out a physical characteristic and saying that that was a deficiency and then coupling that with coward. That's Mm -hmm. kind of their MO. But I also really liked Cyborg's response to that. He says, uh, we were briefed on you weak-kneed cowards months ago. And Cyborg's response is, then maybe you should have been longed on us, pal, because what you don't know about me'd probably fill a galaxy. I think first and foremost amongst those things would be that Cyborg has hydraulic knees. He's not weak-kneed at all. You can debate his cowardice if you want, but objectively, no, he has very, very strong knees. Mm-hmm. So, it should have been longed on him, which is a weird phrase. I, I enjoyed that wordplay. Yeah, I did too. Any other insults you feel are worth bringing up? I guess just the only uh, parting shot was... Um... Red Star referring to the crowd of people he was trying to save as slow fools. Yeah. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans, until Danny Chase showed up. In this comic, who did you have as your Aqualad, and who did you have as your Beast Boy? For my Aqualad, I went with the strong-kneed cyborg. He saved Starfire, and he finally, we hope, (laughs) resolved his loop on uh, his relationship stuff and figured out, hey, I love Sarah Charles, and we can do the long-distance thing. I also love New York, and those aren't mutually exclusive, so let's give it a shot if you're game. And I was like... Thank goodness. Yeah, thank goodness you finally reached the same conclusion that you reached four other times over the course of ten issues. And it's going to stick. Let's hope. I'll I'll retcon that if he changes. Okay, that's fair. I had Cyborg as a very strong contender. I ultimately went with Starfire. Just, she did so good in that fight scene. She literally beat Sickle with both hands tied behind her back. It was a really cool fight scene, too. Like. That is the, I told you, the comic book is essentially three fight scenes with some slight interstitial material. Uh, That was the first eight-page fight scene. A lot of it focused on Starfire fighting 
with her arms tied behind her back. And it was both illustrated and written in a really fun way. She had been trained to fight with her arms tied behind her back by the Okaran warlords. And she's like, I thought they were stupid to make me do that. But okay, I guess it was worth it. Mm -hmm. In addition to all of the combat stuff, she'd like does a fun like trick shot where she blasts Sickle. Like she has to contort herself to blast Sickle. Behind and, uh, the back, two hands tied, Starbolt. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. It was really cool. And so uh, I had her as my Aqualad. Just as an aside, too, we learned in this issue, and I think maybe it's come up before, but I had forgotten that she is six feet, seven inches tall. Yeah. That's very tall. It really is. And I, I would suspect with her hair, mm -hmm. even taller. Like oh, yeah. with her hair, she is easily. 12 and a half feet tall. <laughs> it's a big haircut. Yeah, it is big. And yeah, the other reason I had Cyborg as my backup for Aqualad was uh, because he is the only Teen Titan who knows where lips are. So, good for him. Yeah, good job. Conversely, for my Beast Boy, a lot of options here. I ended up going with Dick. I think as team leader, it was ultimately his decision to make Raven wait in the car during this fight because... She would wrap it up too fast. We do see that Wonder Girl is the person who brings that up, but we also have seen that she is willing to defer to Dick's judgment on these matters. As team leader, I think he gets the credit for that move. And also the whole Dickster interaction. Uh -huh. And as kind of charming as it was, I didn't like seeing Dick be a Yorex boss and do the... Uh... <laughs> uh, I don't know, what are, you, what are you thinking we should do? Mm -hmm. Yep, that was what I was going to say. Yep. Yeah, so I had uh, Dick as my beast boy in this. Who did you have? For just really not being able to have any empathy in, or read the room, I had DFC mm -hmm. for the part where we've just learned that Red Star will never see his beloveds again. Yeah. And Danny's like, yeah, but here you can go get an Orange Julius whenever you want. <laughs> yeah. He should have brought up the Orange Juliuses. I think that's another point against him. Ugh. But yeah, no, he really was just like, but rah, rah, America freedom. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Yep, that and again, you know, wildly inconsistent powers, mm -hmm. right? Can yeah. lift a rocket, can't lift a ceiling, put both him and Jericho in danger for their lives yep. to not get squished. Boo. Yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. I'm never going to argue with you with having Danny fucking Chase as the worst. All right. Dick and a Danny. All right. So, Corey, we will probably eventually cover the fourth annual, but last time in at least a while where we're going to get to pick an Eduardo Barreto panel. What did you have as your favorite panel? Oof. There was a lot of good art in here. It was a little hard to choose. I had a toss-up. I think my backup is probably going to be, it's page 18, and I called it Sad Red. Mm -hmm. And it's that one where it's just, it's before he screams no and startles me. Yep. Where it's, uh, you know, kind of classic, you know, comic book style to show somebody's in a funk where there's just like that sort of scribbly shadow behind them. Yeah. But super well executed, and it conveys him just being super bummed out. I had that shortlisted as well. That is a really, really strong panel and one that I really enjoyed. I also had the what we talked about earlier, the trick shot that Starfire does. I thought that was just a really 
interesting fight scene moment that was really well illustrated. I really enjoyed that. Ultimately, I think my favorite, it's kind of a low-key moment, but I called it the Easter Candy Airport. Mm. I think it's probably a sunrise, maybe? I don't know what time they're leaving. It just seems like mellower than a sunset, and I feel like that's more of a sunrise thing. But it is pastel cotton candy clouds over an airport as Vic and Sarah are saying goodbye to one another for now. Mm -hmm. It's just a really nicely drawn airport with some cool colors in it. I really dug. Yeah, no, that's great. Good perspective on the jet. Mm -hmm. The other one that was right up there with it is the one on the page right before it, where it is uh, sad Leonid walking away, where it's he's just so clearly physically as well as emotionally isolated from everyone, and you see his shadow cast long in front of him. It's just really nicely done and very evocative emotionally mm -hmm. yeah man he got the real fucking short end of the stick in this whole thing i feel so bad for that dude mm -hmm. my favorite was on page nine i called it Screak! and it's cyborg and starfire reeling from a i think a blast from hammer's power hammer ray gun yeah no that is cool they are flying in salbucema poses you don't see their trapezoid mouths open, but it is still very, very dynamic. Yeah, bunch of Kirby crackle in the background and magenta background, bright yellow lettering, mm -hmm. and then they're kind of in purple shadow. Yeah. Very cool. It is very, very cool. Less stoked about the results of that, the panel in which a very sexualized Starfire is lying unconscious. If she's unconscious, I don't know how or why she is arching her back like that. It's something that has cropped up a few times in this, where it's especially when she is injured in a fight, there will often be a weirdly sexual starfire pose, and this would be an example of that. Yeah, there was another panel that stood out to me like that, where it's a profile of cyborg thinking, and Wonder Girl and Starfire are in the background, and Wonder Girl is for some reason pushing her butt out towards the camera and, like, looking over her shoulder. Yeah, it's on page 16, and, yeah, I, I see what you're it's talking like, that's about. that's unnecessary. It's, it really is. It, it is weird. I mean, not uncommon in comic books, but I think it's maybe telling that it has been uncommon enough in this comic book that it is noteworthy. This might just be that it's from an earlier era. I think you do see a lot more of that later on in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I honestly wonder to what extent that is a result of artists being more used to getting their work back and being able to resell the originals of their work. I would bet that like a cheesecakey panel would sell more easily and perhaps for more money than one that doesn't have a partially naked lady doing a weird pose. Mm. I don't know. That's entirely speculative on my part. Well, Corey, I have just one further question I have to ask you. Wapoot! In the year of our Lord, 1990, the very arbitrarily decided year at this point, and the month of our Lord, February, what is Aqualad probably up to, Corey? Wapoot! So, you know how sometimes you hear something and you don't hear it quite right and then it just becomes a whole thing? Mm -hmm. So there was a little bit of that going on where Aqualad had some time off coming up 
and Beaky had been pretty down in the dumps after some of the medical stuff that he went through and hmm. that we, you know, talked about several episodes ago. And he heard about a Pelican event in Florida at a sporting stadium, and he's like, Beaky likes sports. Beaky's a Pelican. I'm going to take him to this fucking Pelican thing. Yeah. And uh, we'll get some sunshine near the ocean. We'll have a, a good old time. What Aqualad didn't realize was that what it was was a senior league baseball event. And uh, that is a winter baseball league based in Florida for players 35 and older. 32 being the minimum for uh, catchers. Yeah, seniors. Mm -hmm. 32-year-olds. Yep, so that felt good yep. to read. Yep. And uh, <laughs> so it turned out that the, the Pelicans was the name of one of the senior league teams who was uh, playing in this baseball winter league championship. So at first, you know, Beaky was just like, eh, I'm not really feeling it. I kind of want to leave. But Aqualad, who I think we've talked about as a real baseball fan, mm -hmm. loves the sport, kept telling them, you know, hold on. And Beaky's like, okay, but Pelicans aren't doing that good. I'm a Pelican. I, I want them to, uh, to win. And Aqualad was just, you know, unflappable. Told Beaky. Uh, uh, yeah. Gotcha. I did that on purpose. You know, hey, Beaky, come on. Uh, don't you know? Don't you know? Things can change. They'll go your way. Just hold on. And, okay, after a few pints of beer, Beaky gets into it. He's having a great time. On February 4th, the uh, St. Petersburg Pelicans beat the West Palm Beach Tropics 12-4 to to win the first Senior Professional Baseball Association Championship. Turned out, pretty good game. Ah, you know what? I bet all of those 34-year-olds had a great time getting the early bird special at a Red Robin later that night. I hope that's a typo that <laughs> Wikipedia had, because I was like, that seems really young for a senior league, but yeah. whatever. So also, coincidentally, sitting in the stands just above Aqualad and Beaky was China Phillips, daughter of John and Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas fame, and also one-third of the pop trio Wilson Phillips. So she overheard this banter between the two of them, and that actually became part of the inspiration for her to write the song Hold On oh. by Wilson Phillips, released February 27. That went on to become the Billboard Song of the Year in 1990. Wow. I would say, arguably, not even the best song called Hold On by an all-female group to be released in February of 1990. On Vogue had a song called Hold On. That's a real fucking bop. Underrated song. Do you think Spaceman Bill Lee was pitching in that senior league at that point? He was still playing ball until his like, late 60s in various minor leagues. He was one of my favorite pitchers for the Red Sox ever. His career peaked, I think, in the 70s. But, uh, he was a weirdo, and he tried to get his number changed to 337 so that when he stood on his head, it would say Lee. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they had the league wouldn't let him. That's too high a number. Hmm. But did he stand on his head often? Fair amount of the time. Wow. The real spaceman. Yeah. Well, that's one thing that Aqualad was up to in February of 1990. But it wasn't the only thing. See, other than that, Aqualad, as the international globetrotting celebrity that he was, had been invited to New Zealand to help them celebrate their sesquicentennial. That's their 150th birthday. Mm. It was a big to-do, and no expense was spared in bringing Aqualad there. 
he's like, well, you know, I, I can swim there. And they're like, no, 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 you, there's no need for you to swim here. We'll send you a luxury cruiser stocked with bottles of Perrier. I know you need water every hour or you'll dry out. I was like, well, I'm on a boat. That's really not going to be an issue. But thank you. You know what? It's nice to be appreciated. Thank you. Perrier, huh? Fair enough. Never actually had that before, but uh, sounds fancy. Mm -hmm. Why not? Mm -hmm. So, but right before the ship is about to take off, on Valentine's Day, actually, Perrier had to recall 150 million bottles of their product because it had inadvertently been laced with a carcinogen. Mm. So the New Zealand crew, they were like, well, we can't serve Aqualad these, obviously. They cleared them out, but they forgot to tell him that they'd cleared them out. And the ship was still stocked with a ton of bottles of champagne for the celebration the Queen had visited earlier that month. And so Aqualad had not realized that that was the case. He thought, oh, there's these green bottles. Every hour, just going to pound a couple of these. (laughs) Oh, the hangover. He gets to New Zealand. He is in rough shape. And he and Beaky just make kind of a scene. They got up to some shenanigans. It was embarrassing for everyone. He sobered up and apologized eventually when he realized what was going on. And New Zealand was like, go blimey. I'm from New Zealand. There you go. I went Australian, then I corrected it. Yeah, nice. With a flawless (laughs) New Zealand accent. It's pretty good. Thank you. Anyway, they they decided, you know what, we want to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. Men from the sea getting too drunk is a real fucking problem. (laughs) We have to nip this in the bud. And so they're like, well, how do we stop seamen from getting drunk? Well, here's one step that we'll take. Maybe, maybe we should stop giving the Royal New Zealand Navy daily rum rations. Which they had up until that day. That is why on February 27th, 1990, the New Zealand Royal Navy stopped giving their sailors rum every day. Damn. As Black Tot Day, that is called. Because the tot was the rum ration? Yep. Mm. And no more. It was a dark day for the proud tradition of rum sodomy in the lash. <laughs> Sailor Jerry. Well, that's my daily ration of rum. Mm, same. Ooh. Well, Corey, thank you for joining me and reading this four out of four Rocky Fours issue with me. You are welcome. Had a good time reading it. Looking forward to hitting up the uh, return of George Perez coming up next. Likewise. And looking forward to seeing what the Defenders are up to next issue now that uh, Nighthawk is dead. Jeez, it still feels weird. It really does. If you want to let us know how weird you feel about all that or anything else, you can hit us up at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be contacted electronically. Can you imagine? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also on some uh, social media in various places. Uh, Probably most frequently Twitter and Facebook, but, you know, we've got an Instagram account. We've got a Grindr account for some reason (laughs) that somebody made for us. We've uh, probably on seacaptainsonly.com. I haven't checked that lately. And we have a LinkedIn account, I'm almost certain, that I've never 
looked at. I set that up. You should look at it. Okay, I'm sorry. I will. It has two views. Ooh. I think both me, but... Well, soon it'll have three. Promise. Thank you. But yeah, we're on various places on the internet, so you can check us out there. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? Well, I guess I will enjoy my daily tot. Mmm. That's a rum ration. It is. And, I don't know, what goes with rum? Uh, like, food-wise. Oh. What does sailors need? Ah, hardtack? Hard yeah. Right. Hardtack? Limes? I'm going to be course. enjoying a plate of limes and hardtack washed down with some spiced rum. Sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. How about you? What are you up to? Ah, probably watching some more classic monster movies. I've never actually seen The Invisible Man, so I'm going to check that out. And, uh, yeah, other than that, we're in people's heart. Halloween is approaching. I might, uh, take a look out the window, see if I can see their skeleton. Get spooked by that. Ooh. You know? Spooky. Spooky skeletons. Mm. Good plan. Thanks. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can check us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There is also a whole bunch of other stuff that is up there. I've been making a bunch of video reviews of classic comic books. I recently started looking at some Halloween-themed comics. I just took a look at the Halloween-themed issue of Tomb of Dracula. That was pretty fun, and I'm gonna look at some other seasonally appropriate stuff, which uh, maybe you would enjoy. Help get you in a festive spirit. Spirit, mm. huh? Like a ghost. Yeah. Pretty spooky. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you can check that stuff out. There is a bunch of stuff that is up there, as I said, exclusively available to our donors as a thank you for really helping keeping the show going. Uh, it means the world to me, and thank you so much for being so supportive. Corey, if people would like to support the show in a non-financial way, what's a, what's a way that they can do that? Advertise the show? Yeah. Take out a Skyplane? Yeah, take... Yeah, yeah. They're Skywriter. Called Skyplane. A Skyplane with a writer. On yeah. It. Mm-hmm. Gotta have a writer on your Skyplane. Well, yeah. How else are you going to tell people about the show? Yeah. That is probably not realistic for everybody. Um, you right. can tell... We, we don't all have access to Skyplanes. Or writers. Yeah. Uh, tell your neighbors. Sure. About the show. Just, I mean, be respectful because the pandemic and stuff, but... Sure. You know, yeah. tell them that's pretty good. They might like it, how to find it. And then just leave in a review wherever you have gotten a hold of the podcast. They yeah. pr will probably let you do that. Like a nice review. Yeah, no. Preferably. We, yeah, preferably. I'm, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Leave us a nice review. Or if you don't like the show, leave us a sarcastic bad review. Like, oh, five stars. Yeah. Oof. Stinks. Hurts a little but, bit. But you know what I learned from it? Mm. I'll, I'll do better next time. I'll remember that pain and channel it. Yeah. It'll make me strong. Yeah. Like Dolph Lundgren and Rocky IV. Oh, uh, this review. I can't hit it. It's like, like a, steel. It's like a piece of iron. It's like a piece of iron. That's what it's like, Corey. Yeah. Not like steel. No. No. It's like you haven't even seen it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I have. You think about it all the time, and you haven't seen it since, like, 1980. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's constantly running in my head, but it changes a little bit every time. Yeah. So, yeah, um, leave that for your review. If you don't mind, five stars would be great. Um, I think that's the only things that people can do. Yeah, they can tell people, they can leave a review, they can share the show when it comes up on various socials media, if you guys are up on there. Yeah, that's another way to tell people. Yeah, uh, you could advertise on the show. You know, if you got a product you're looking to sell. Oh, yeah, that's true. We're pretty cheap. Yeah, yeah, 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. But that gets you a lot of ears. Yeah, gets gets a lot, a lot of ears on your product. So uh, if you have any ear-related items that you would like to sell, we're talking muffs, we're talking rings, we're talking buds, buds. yeah, mm. wigs. Um, nope. No? No, those earwigs are creepy as hell, man. Yeah, but no, I mean, not, no, no. no. Not advertising for earwigs. I would have the monies, right? Oh, that's true. So if wait, you're, wait, if wait, you're yeah. part of the big earwig lobby. Yeah, we haven't been paid yet. So for now, yeah, earwigs are fucking gross, but I'll change my tune. Fucking toss me a nickel, I'll do a little dance. I'll, I'll count out a big earwig. Mm -hmm. uh, that, was a, that was a fun scene in Star Trek II Wrath of Khan. Everybody loves it when that thing goes in Chekhov's ear. You know what? Chekhov had it coming. That's an, example. That's an example of what I would be willing to say if I was paid. As of now... Fuck that thing. Fuck Khan. Fuck Ricardo Montalban for putting that in his ear. Yeah. I mean, Ricardo Montalban's just an actor. Yeah, that's his I guess character. Fuck Khan. Yeah. 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 No, he's a fine actor. Yeah. He's he's a good guy. Oh, thank God. For, as far as I know. Caveat. If it turns out Ricardo Montalban's a fucking monster, I do not back him. I think we should just have one blanket caveat for everybody we talk about on the show. If it turns out they're bad. We didn't know. We didn't know. Let us know. Yeah. And uh, we'll make a note. Yep. Five stars. <laughs> <laughs> no! Don't give the bad people five stars, Corey. Huh? Oh, shit. Yeah, I got mixed up. Yeah, no, I understand. Anyway, until next week, keep those squidgers plonkin' winks, or we'll squap ya. Bye. Bye. <laughs> and they knew it. me twice <laughs> fuck you you have got me twice with that yeah so mm -hmm. what happens if they fool you three times nobody knows let's not find out cash prizes yeah maybe no i get the prize what why oh. i fooled you the third time it's like um in some countries you buy your friend's birthday presents on your birthday you're just doing a yakash Smirnov routine <laughs> <laughs> In communist Russia, birthday presents give you! Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right.